This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible for free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Diffusion International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we blow our minds with the physics and philosophy of time. But first up, here's the news. The war on science continues. Following the decision to scrap the Minister for Science, Australia's Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, has had more arbitrary job cuts forced on them by the Australian Federal Government. The Liberal National Coalition governments just axed the legal team in Melbourne who've protected the CSIRO's many patents, including the very profitable Wi-Fi patent. Up to 1,600 scientific support staff are expected to be sacked next and even the executives will be reduced from 22 chiefs of divisions to just nine. The job cuts are on top of the ban on renewing the jobs of the 1,400 CSIRO scientists on temporary and casual contracts. Around 600 of these came up for renewal by the end of last year. The money that the government saves is printed on plastic banknotes invented at the CSIRO and marketed to mints around the world. The government denies all responsibility for the cuts, but all the decisions are being made by businessmen appointed to their roles by the new coalition government. Immediately after the election, the government closed the Climate Change Commission and refused to send anyone to the international climate change negotiations. The commission has since crowdfunded a year's worth of funding to continue its work. They tried to shut down the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, despite the fact it was making a 7% profit. Clearly, the government's interest isn't just in saving money. The CSIRO patent on its invention of Wi-Fi required a lengthy legal battle of several years to defend, but it eventually gained them almost half a billion dollars. By any reasonable estimation, that should have shown the value of both the research team and the legal team. Even worse, the Wi-Fi litigation is expected to continue for at least another six months, potentially earning CSIRO even more money. At CSIRO, John O'Sullivan started looking for ways to detect radio pulses emitted by exploding black holes, as predicted by Stephen Hawking in 1974. The radio signals were distorted by the atmosphere, so he adapted the mathematics of Fourier transforms to radio astronomy to make sharper images. Over the years, he and Graham Daniels, John Dean, Diathom Ostry and Terry Percival adapted the work for radio communication that's now used in over a billion devices around the world. By the late 1980s, O'Sullivan realised that if you could have mobile computers able to access the internet without wires, 
there would be a huge potential. The radio signals were distorted by reflecting from objects in rooms and passing through walls. So O'Sullivan worked on adapting his astronomical work with Fourier transforms to sharpen the wireless network signals. In 1992, CSIRO gained the Australian patent for wireless networking, and by 1996, they had the US patent as well. By 2000, CSIRO, working with Radiata, were able to demonstrate the first Wi-Fi chips. John O'Sullivan won the Prime Minister's Science Prize for his work, and these days he's working for CSIRO Astronomy on the Square Kilometre Array, which will be the world's largest radio telescope. India and Australia join forces to travel to Mars. A few weeks ago on Diffusion, I interviewed Jason Held, Director and CEO of Sabre Astronautics. Sabre Astronautics has been awarded a federal government grant of $45,000 to run joint Indian-Australian space operations activities with the aim of building professional ties between space innovation teams in both countries. The grant includes use of Sabre's Responsive Operations Space Centre in Sydney to demonstrate a range of scientific and technical projects of interest to the space research teams of both countries. The funding comes from the Australia-India Council, which is part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The first part of the program will be a Mars simulation research study in Arkarula, South Australia, in July 2014. Located in the spectacular northern Flinders Ranges Mountains, the Arkarula site has been chosen to simulate the harsh environment of the Martian plains. The study will compare how different combinations of human astronauts and rovers with robot manipulator arms, some autonomous and some guided, work together for specific tasks. There'll be some geology and astrobiology in a Martian analogue environment. Led by the Sabre Astronautics team in partnership with the Mars Society Australia and Mars Society India, the study was also part-funded by the CSIRO. Participants include researchers from India's Institute of Technology, the University of New South Wales, Macquarie University and Murdoch University. A group of high school teachers will participate as part of the Spacewood Bound program to develop teaching materials for their classrooms for the next generation of space explorers. The second part of the program involves Sabre providing an on-orbit mission control for the Parikshit satellite being developed by students of India's Manipal Institute of Technology. Parikshit is a small 2kg CubeSat-class spacecraft scheduled for launch at the end of 2014 on a rocket developed by the Indian Space Research Organisation, ISRO. Sable will operate the spacecraft from its Sydney Responsive Space Operations Centre. The Parikshit satellite will also be equipped with the Sabre Astronautics Drag-N deorbiting tether device to make sure that Parikshit doesn't end up as space junk. The Drag-N tether acts as a kind of environmentally safe self-destruct mechanism. When the spacecraft reaches its end of life, the tether reels out and drags in the electrically charged upper atmosphere. This creates forces that pull the satellite down to burn up as it falls to Earth. Deploying the drag-end tether on Parikshit will space-qualify the Sabre deorbiting system. In 2013, India and Australia signed a Memorandum of Understanding on Civil Space, Technology and Education. India is continuing to ramp up its Mars exploration program. Its first interplanetary spacecraft, the $75 million Mars Orbiter mission, is on its way to Mars. It's now travelling at 30 kilometres per second, with less than 200 days to go until it reaches Mars.
Dark chocolate for health. Dark chocolate has been praised for its antioxidant bioflavonoids and its age-reversing resveratrol, but we've never really been certain of how most of its health benefits work. At the 247th National Meeting and Exposition of the American Chemical Society, it was revealed by John Finley and Maria Moore from the Louisiana State University that dark chocolate feeds certain strains of symbiotic bacteria in our gut where it's fermented into compounds that reduce inflammation. Inflammation is at the heart of a host of the symptoms of ageing and many autoimmune diseases. The good microbes, such as bifidobacterium and lactic acid bacteria, feast on chocolate. They grow and ferment it, producing compounds that are anti-inflammatory. The bad microbes in the gut, including Clostridia and E. coli, are associated with inflammation and can cause gas, bloating, diarrhea and constipation. Dark chocolate has more antioxidants and less sugar than milk chocolate, and white chocolate doesn't have any of the polyphenols at all. The bad bacteria can feed on the sugar. The compounds the good bacteria make from the dark chocolate lessen the inflammation of cardiovascular tissue, reducing the long-term risk of stroke. It's good for your heart. The team tested three cocoa powders using a model digestive tract. The model was made from a series of modified test tubes to simulate normal digestion. Then they subjected the non-digestible materials in the chocolate to anaerobic fermentation using human faecal bacteria. There are several non-digestible things in chocolate, such as the antioxidant polyphenolic compounds catechin and epicatechin, and a small amount of dietary fibre. Catechin and epicatechin have been identified as healthy ingredients, but we never knew how they helped. The fibre is fermented, and the large polyphenolic polymers are metabolised to smaller molecules, which are more easily absorbed. These smaller polymers exhibit anti-inflammatory activity. The team suggested that combining the fibre in cocoa with prebiotics is likely to improve a person's overall health and help convert polyphenolics in the stomach into anti-inflammatory compounds. Prebiotics are carbohydrates found in foods like raw garlic and cooked whole wheat flour that humans can't digest, but good bacteria like to eat. The good bacteria then outcompete the bad bacteria. Finley said that people could experience even more health benefits when dark chocolate is combined with solid fruits like pomegranates and acai. Looking to the future, he said that the next step would be for industry to do just that, combine these foods. Thanks to Louisiana State University and the American Chemical Society, we now know that fruit dipped in dark chocolate reduces inflammation and reduces your risk of stroke. Uncanny robots. Robots that look like humans start to creep people out the more humanoid they become. The uncomfortably creepy point between where a robot looks like a cartoon and where it looks just like a human is called the uncanny valley. New Scientist reports on roboticists who've been researching ways to avoid the uncanny valley. Ironically, by giving the robots little quirks that make them seem more alive. A team from Plymouth University in the UK showed a film of a humanoid now robot from Aldebaran Robotics from France. They added either sad or cheerful chirps and beeps when the robot was shown being slapped, kissed, stroked or having its eyes covered. 300 people from the crowdsourcing site Crowdflower were asked to rate what they thought the robot was feeling after each action. They found that people responded the same to the happy or sad sounds, 
but were much more engaged than when no sound at all was used. It seems that people will take any sound at all to mean that something important is happening, even a random sound, because it gives the appearance of a response from the robot. A team from the University of Wisconsin-Madison have been adding twitches to the way a robot holds its head, so that it's not completely still for very long. They use a face-tracking camera to make sure the robot looks at people it's interacting with. But to avoid a feeling of being stared at, they program the robot to look away from time to time. The team asked 30 students to have a conversation with a now humanoid robot. And the students reported that the robots who looked away from time to time seemed more thoughtful and purposeful. A team from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, found that it matters where the robot appears to be looking its gaze. If a robot is going to hand you an object, then, like a human, it needs to lock eyes with you first and then look where it's going to put the object for you to take. Anka Dragon of Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh found that introducing a small delay to the robot-human handover made it seem more natural, even though it was more awkward. A tenth of a second was enough to be like the natural human hesitation that people expect. What people expect is important. Because the only thing worse than a predictable creepy humanoid robot is a shockingly creepy humanoid robot. to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. It's about time. How should we look at time? Does physics match our personal experience of time? Sydney University has a centre for time that studies the philosophy of time. I'm on their mailing list but I've never been to one of their events because I don't understand the blurbs they send me. Over 2,000 years ago, Heraclitus stated that time flows like a river. All is transient. You cannot step in the same river twice. Parmenides stated that time is an illusion and everything is fixed and unchanging. Douglas Adams had his character Ford Prefect state that time is an illusion and lunchtime doubly so. There's presentism theory, which says that only the present is real. The future isn't real until it becomes the present, and the present stops being real when it becomes the past. There's growing theory, which states that the past is real and the present is real, making the future real as it grows forward one slice at a time. And then there's block theory, which comes from Einstein's general relativity. In block theory, the universe, past, present, future, is one solid block of space-time, unchanging in four dimensions, length, breadth, height, and time. The present is just a slice of time in the block. The past and the future are equally real and unchanging. Nothing happens, the universe just is. This is the model favoured by many physicists and many philosophers, despite the fact that it contradicts our everyday experience of time so to speak. 
this model of time seems to be determinate. That the future has already happened, so it's not possible for anything to change. However, Hugh Price, formerly with the Centre for Time, claimed on Radio National that the block theory of time does not inevitably suggest determinism. He used the metaphor of standing on the equator of the Earth. Standing at the equator doesn't tell you much about what things are like in the tropics. But the Earth is still one whole block. So standing at the present doesn't tell you about the future, so it's not predetermined. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand that metaphor at all. The tropics don't come about as a result of me walking to them from the equator. They were already there. It still seems like a predetermined model to me. If you understand the philosopher's block theory of time and how it isn't a predetermined universe, please do write in to science at diffusionradio.com and explain it to me. And so to physics where I'm on safer ground. In the old Newtonian world, we had simple cause and effect. Each individual cause inevitably led to a predictable effect. If you knew enough about the initial conditions, you could predict everything. Entropy is the fact that everything is running down, that things were more ordered in the past than they are now. Without the sun to power us on Earth, everything would run down and we'd all die. However, we gain that solar power because the sun runs down more in generating the power than the order we gain in using it. Overall, the universe is running down. Entropy, and hence disorder, tends towards a maximum. So entropy is an arrow telling you which direction lies in the past and which direction awaits in the future. Einstein's general relativity has space and time together as a four-dimensional space-time block, stretching from past to future. Gravity is an emergent property of the way that masses bend the shape of space-time. The predictions of general relativity have been confirmed in experiment after experiment. It works so well that we have to use equations from general relativity in our GPS mapping software to take into account that satellites are further away from the gravitational centre of the Earth than we are. This matters because time flows more slowly the closer you are to a gravity source like the Earth, and the more massive the object that is bending space-time around you. Time flows more slowly on Earth than it does in space, to a degree that we need to take into account. We can observe light bending around heavy stars, causing a lensing effect. It works. In special relativity, time flows more slowly when you start travelling close to the speed of light in a vacuum, which is about 300 million kilometres per second. This has been measured in particle accelerators. Particles undergo radioactive decay at a highly predictable rate. If you accelerate them near the speed of light, they take longer to decay. It works. So, relativity says that time is flowing at different rates all over the universe, slowing where there are heavy objects and where objects are travelling very fast. My now doesn't match up with your now if you're travelling at a different speed relative to me or you're experiencing a greater or lesser force of gravity. However, both general relativity and special relativity don't make any useful predictions about how matter behaves when it's very small. So it's an incomplete theory it's a little bit wrong. For the very small, we have quantum physics. In quantum physics, we're ruled by what's known as the standard model. The standard model is very, very successful. Every time we find a new experiment to test it with, we confirm the truth of the standard model. The Higgs boson discovery last year was further confirmation of the standard model. 
In quantum physics, we don't have a determinate effect following every cause. Instead, we have indeterminism. Probability instead of inevitability. Things can happen spontaneously, but they're very unlikely. On average, things happen in a predictable way, but individually, it's random. Entropy only tends towards a maximum overall, on average, it's not absolute in every case. Things can become more orderly spontaneously, but it's very unlikely. Probability rules. Quantum physics is responsible for most of our electronics. It very definitely works. However, gravity is missing from the quantum explanation of the world. We've never seen any signs of a quantum of gravity, a graviton, so quantum physics is a little bit wrong. It's not complete. There are many physicists around the world working hard on discovering new physics that will explain gravity in a quantum way, but they haven't succeeded yet. So we have two very successful theories of physics that work well enough to trust your life to them, but nonetheless contradict each other. Then you have what happens when you take probability and add infinity. Infinities tend to break things. If you have a probabilistic theory like quantum physics that allows bizarre things to happen, but makes them so unlikely you rarely see them, you'd think you end up with a boring everyday universe. However, if you have those rules for a near infinite time into the future, then the bizarre things will inevitably happen eventually. A one in a million chance is always going to happen at least once every million times you look, because that is the definition. So if it's a one in ten with a million zeros after a chance that quantum fluctuations, instead of producing a photon of light out of nothing, will instead produce an atom out of nothing, and it's even more unlikely that many atoms would appear at once, and more unlikely again that all those atoms would spontaneously appear in the form of a thinking brain, perhaps even with a false memory of a life like ours, then over enormous cosmically achingly long periods of time, it becomes inevitable. This is Boltzmann's brain. Boltzmann's brains will pop up given enough time. A cyclic version is to suggest that if time stretches on infinitely into the future, then eventually the whole universe would spontaneously form again, and then every possible history would be enacted, eventually. This would continue until we and our whole lives were reenacted at some immeasurably far future time. And then you get the multiverse theories. The first multiverse theories used to hold that at every point where more than one outcome was possible from any event, then the universe split, and every outcome is enacted in a separate but nearby universe. Many people have written about the universe where Hitler won the Second World War. The multiverse is how physicists like David Deutsch interpret the double slit experiment. In the double slit experiment, a quantum of light that travels through two slits behaves differently from a quantum of light that travels through one slit. The light acts as if it's interfering with its other universe twin that went through the other slit to produce an observable interference pattern. It only went through one slit, but it's interfering with something. The path not travelled matters. Astronomers and string theorists have a different kind of multiverse. They hypothesize a multiverse where universes are separated in higher spatial dimensions. These universes may not all have the same physical laws if it turns out that different physical laws are possible. Or the physical constants may be a tiny bit different. 
or it may be that all of them have the same constants and the same laws. This multiverse is infinite in space and time, with new universes butting off old ones in space rather than in time. They don't butt off every instant, only when they generate giant black holes. Just as with the Boltzmann brains in infinite time, the infinite space of the multiverse suggests that every possible history, no matter how unlikely, is being enacted in some universe somewhere, simply because of the vast numbers. To infinity and beyond. It's something to think about when you have the time. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And please check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha,